Well, it's a privilege and it's an honor to be here with you guys this morning and open God's Word. Uh, my family and I are headed to East Africa and the nation of Kenya to be specific and the nation of South Sudan um, in, in, in a little bit. We'll be in South Sudan as soon as we can be there. And uh, we're doing some ministry in some other parts of the world. But, um, but the Lord's been very good to us, and we're really excited to tell you guys more about that in the main service. But for now, I hoped we could just open God's Word together and have a bit of discussion on, um, on you know, about fear and faith. Fear and faith. So before we do that, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us understand His Word. Dear Lord, <clears throat> Help us understand your word. We can't understand it without you. And we certainly can't change ourselves. We need you to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 14. I hope you guys are okay with collaborating a little bit this morning and contributing to a discussion. Let's have a discussion a little bit. And um, I'm going to do all the talking in the main service during the sermon. So uh, you probably don't want me to do all the talking twice. Um, I know I don't want to do all the talking twice. So uh, please help me out this morning and share your thoughts. It's one of my favorite things is to study God's Word with God's people. And this is, this is the power of the local church, right? Not the one guy standing at the front, but the entire body and the Holy Spirit working through the entire body. That's the power of the local church. And so, um, so let's just all as a body interact with this text this morning in Matthew 14. We're going to be starting in verse 22. But before we get to the text, I just want to ask some general questions. What would you say fear is? What is fear? Yeah. It's the unknown. Good. Good. We fear the unknown. All right. Yeah, what's fear? No wrong answers. And if it is a wrong answer, I, I won't tell you it's wrong. You know? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, something that causes you to be unsure. Fear causes you to be unsure. Good, good. Um, okay, yeah, Pastor. When we let ourselves get convinced that our resources are less than our challenges. Okay, yeah. Uh, when we convince ourselves that our resources are less than our challenges or that something is true that is not true, right? kind of um, fear leads us to believe that a lie is true, maybe, right? It's an emotion, right? Fear is an emotion. Um, and it's an emotion that is very strong. So I used to work at a camp in Southern California, speaking at this camp every summer, um, six times a summer. And, and one of the things I had to do as a speaker was guide children, juniors like the ones standing up here saying verses, up a you know, three-story high rock wall while they're tied into a harness and a trolley system and, and I'm the belayer and I'm tied to a railroad post that goes down to the ground 10 feet and I myself am not the smallest guy in the world either. So, you know, they're pretty safe. And so before they would go up the rock wall, I'd always give them a laundry list of things that were the reasons they were safe. You know, the facts are, and I would say that, the word facts over and over again. Here's a fact. The rope you're tied to could pull a Jeep out of a hole. 
You know, that's how strong it is. It's a very strong rope. The, the trolley system you're hanging from could suspend a Volkswagen bug in the air. That's how strong it is. And the harness, the full body harness you're wearing, um, th that could suspend 2,000 pounds, you know, and you're, you're 70 pounds, so I think we're okay. You know, and I would go through things like that with them. And the reason I do that is because I knew there was a moment coming very soon. There's this moment up that rock wall. It's a, it happens almost every time without fail. Few are fearless when they get to this moment. But about a third of the way up the wall, every kid does the same thing. They look down for the first time because they've been climbing for a while. And you know what happens when they look down, right? Ah! And they cling to that wall. I want to go down. I want to go down. I want to go down. Call my mom. And I just yell at them from the bottom, please, facts over fear, facts over feelings. Keep the facts in you. So, so fear is this emotion, you know, and it leads us to believe things are true that are not true. Good. What's faith? What's faith? Anybody have an idea? What's faith? I know there's, everybody wants to go at once. I know it. Okay. Trust. Excellent. Excellent word. Good. Faith. Anybody else have a different answer for faith? I think that's a great way to put it. Trust, right? Um, faith is saying something is real whether or not you can see it, right? Um, so let me ask you a follow-up question. What's the relationship between fear and faith? Do you think they relate to each other in a way? Um, how do you think fear relates to faith and faith relates to fear? Anybody have a guess at that? The wrong fear destroys faith and the right fear enhances faith. Yeah, very good. The, a wrong fear destroys faith. The right type of the fear, the fear of the Lord, you know, really refines faith. Good. Anybody else got an idea? the relationship between fear and faith. And kids, you guys can contribute too. Um, you know, you're, you're not half Christians in my eyes if you've accepted the Lord to say you're, you're full Christian. So uh, contribute. Um, relationship between fear and faith. Relationship between fear and faith. What about this? Um... Let's talk about the wrong type of fear. If you hold, if you have the wrong type of fear overcome you, you know, a, a man, mankind's fear. If you have that type of fear overcome you, how's faith doing in your life? How much of it do you have? Right? It's kind of like fear dissolves faith. Whereas when you do have faith in God, it dissolves your fears, Right? And so there's this relationship between faith and fears that is really interesting. And we see it unfold here in Matthew 14, verse 22. Can somebody read verse 22 for me? I have a volunteer who'd read that out loud. Go ahead. Good. 
So um, looking in Matthew 14, 22, look right above it. What happens right before that verse? Somebody put it out there. What is happening? What's that story that right before that verse that we all know really well? Feeds 5,000 men and their families. That's pretty incredible. 5,000 men and their families. That's pretty incredible. Um, Now, what would you say this miracle did for the faith of the 12 discipling Jesus? Or discipling. Disciples of Jesus, following Jesus. What What did it do for those men? Or if you were one of those people following Jesus, what would that do for your faith to see someone feed 5,000 men and their families? What would that do? Yeah, right? So here's what I want us to keep track of in this passage right here. I'm going to ask this question probably five or six times as we go through the, the narrative. And it's this question of what are the fear levels of the disciples and what are their, what's their faith level at, at different moments in the passage? You're going to see that we're kind of we're kind of in line for a roller coaster here because there's going to be a lot of different emotions throughout this story. Lots of big highs, lots of big lows. And, you know, we're looking at the fear and faith level of the disciples because we really want to study this relationship between these two things and and see how they meet and how to make sure, you know, one is in check and the other is high, you know, and make sure we're not fearful and that we're faithful and, and that type of thing. So as we're working through this story, we're kind of asking that question repeatedly. What's, what's their faith level? What's their fear level? And the 12 are a really interesting group, right? Uh, there's a lot of different people in the 12, isn't there? There's uh, the Sons of Thunder. <laughs> How would you like that to be your name? How many boys say, I'd like to be called one of the Sons of Thunder? Yeah, yeah, right? You know, that's a manly man, right? Uh, one of them was a zealot, a rebel trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. One of them was a tax collector, kind of a crooked crook guy, you know, before uh, he met Jesus. He probably stole from people as far as he took more tax money than he should have. That's what tax collectors were known for. Um, you have a guy named Judas. You have two guys named Judas, but one of them is going to betray Jesus. Um, you have Peter. You've got fishermen. You've got John. Um, you've got lots of different guys in this group, but they're all going to experience pretty similar emotions in this in this uh, account here in Matthew fourteen twenty two. Um, now, uh, can somebody read uh, uh, verses uh, verse twenty three? And I'm going to ask you guys: Where does Jesus Christ send his disciples, and where does he go in verses twenty two and twenty three? Who would read verse twenty three? Yeah. When he had sent the multitudes away. He went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Good. And tell me your name again. Richard. Richard. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on your guys' names today. And I'm going to get them before I leave, okay? So help me. Help me get them. Um, so where does Christ send his disciples? Real easy one. He sends them away, right? Very practical thing. They've just spent an entire day being part of the administration of feeding 5,000 men and their families. I mean, if you had to feed 5,000, be part of the task force that distributed to 5,000 men, you'd feel pretty tired running around that hillside, making sure every last kid in Galilee had some fish and bread, right? That, That would be tiring. So he sends them away. They're tired. Where does Jesus Christ go? Where does Jesus Christ go? What's that? On the mountain. To do what? to pray. That's really interesting to me. That's very interesting to me. Let me ask you guys a question. 
you know, as this is going on and, and Jesus Christ is sending his disciples and, and they're going into something that maybe they're not aware they're about to go into. But what's the relationship? And, and we see this all the time in Jesus Christ's prayer life throughout the Gospels, don't we? Jesus Christ is constantly retreating away to pray. Now, what's the relationship between somebody's prayer life and their faith? What's the relationship between somebody's prayer life and their faith? Yeah. 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 Because prayer is one of the forms we relate to God. It's one of the ways we uh, become closer to Him. You know, because Hebrews chapter 4 says, we're in the throne room of God when we pray. That's pretty incredible that you get to be with God. And so, so prayer strengthens your faith, right? Uh, what else does prayer do? Who does it involve in your life? Who does it invite to be in your life when you pray? It's a real easy one, not a trick question. Who does prayer invite to be in your life? Is it a bad question? Is it bad wording? I'll answer it if it's bad. It's just, it's God, right? But it's not, it's not one of the idols of the world that you're inviting to get into your life. It's an omnipotent, it's an omniscient, it's omnipresent, it's an all-wise God. This is who you're inviting to be in your life when you pray. Isn't that incredible? And am I wrong in thinking that maybe we don't pray like we used to in this country? Is that, do you think, do you think that's somewhat accurate? We don't pray like we used to in this country. Um, I remember reading about the prayer revival of the 1800s when I was in school, reading through this you know, history book on Christianity. And this prayer revival broke out in New York City. Could you imagine a prayer revival breaking out in New York City today? Wouldn't that be great? And what, it started with three guys that closed their shops down for lunch and prayed during lunch. And, and I mean, that just boomed into a nationwide prayer revival. And that's just incredible to me. The power of prayer is incredible. And I can admit in my own life, I do too little of it. It's one of those superpowers that I don't take advantage of like I should, right? Prayer is this thing we don't do quite enough of. And so uh, prayer and faith really do go hand in hand and we see that in the life of Jesus Christ. But let me, let me ask a follow-up question to that. Is there any indication in the passage? Can you scan it real quick and tell me? Is there any indication that the disciples prayed going into the sea? Any indication that they took, you know, they know, they probably know Jesus Christ is retreating away to pray. It's not like, where did Jesus go? Where, you know, they, they understand this. He does this on a regular basis. But does, has that value transferred at this point with the disciples? And do you see them praying in this passage? What do you say? You're nodding your head. No, right? They're not praying. And boy, they're going to wish they were <laughs> in a second. They're going to wish they were praying. So can somebody read, um, oh man, verse 24. 
verse 24. And tell me what's going on in verse 24. Go ahead, Simeon. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the winds was contrary. Yeah. So, Simeon, what kind of situation does that sound like? You ever been on a boat, Simeon? Ever been on? Okay. What, what did they find themselves in the middle of? A storm. A storm. A storm. Now, let me ask you a question about the disciples. Does it worry you that these men are out on the sea in a boat in the middle of a storm? Why or why not would it worry you based on their experiences in life? Does it worry you that these guys are out on the sea? Why or why not? Have these guys ever been on the sea before? Yeah, exactly right. They should be acclimated to being on the boat because they're fishermen. And even the ones that aren't fishermen, right? How did people get to the other sides of these lakes? They took ferries all the time, right? They hopped in somebody else's boat and said, take me to the other side. So, so these guys should not lose their lunch on the water, right? They shouldn't, that shouldn't be one of their problems that they struggle with. But... Uh, what do you see instead in verse 25? How do they react when Jesus starts walking towards them? And what does that tell you about their state of mind as this storm? And what does that tell you about the storm? It was awful. It was awful. Yeah, can somebody read verse 25? Go ahead. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Yeah. And then read verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Yeah. Okay, so there's... There's a couple incredible things going on here. And we have to be careful sometimes as Christians, right? Because we've been around the Word of God for so long that sometimes it underwhelms us. But this is pretty phenomenal, right? There's a guy walking on the water like it's concrete when there's a storm going on. And it's a storm that's on the level that the disciples have rarely ever seen in their lifetime of being on the waters, which tells you this is pretty bad, right? So they see a figure coming towards them in the middle of the night around 3 a.m. That's the fourth watch. And they can't make out quite who it is. And their reaction is one of fear. So disciples, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, right afterwards, faith level, okay, fear level, high or low? Low. Okay, now in the middle of a storm in the middle of the sea. Faith level, high or low? Fear level? <laughs> let's, yeah, let's bump that guy up to 10, right? <laughs> He's at a 10 right now. And this is like at a 2. This is not a good situation. And then in verse 27, Jesus Christ tells the disciples something. Can somebody read verse 27? Yes, go ahead. Good. So 
what's the reason? And let me use a big fancy word, okay, for just a second, and bear with me. What's the big theological reason Jesus gives them for not needing to fear? What's Jesus Christ's reason for not needing to fear? He's there. Boy. Um, now that sounds like something really little and really minor at the, on the surface, right? But you think about that for a second and you drill down into it. He's there. He's there. Now let's fast forward to, in the book of Matthew to Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20. What's the f- last words Jesus Christ gives to his uh, disciples, his apostles, before he leaves? The 11. One missing. What is, he, what is promised to them for this age? for the rest of the age. Does anybody remember those verses? It says in verse 20, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. You know, Jesus hasn't left us. He's not left us. He's here. He's in your life. He's there. He sees what's happening. He sees the struggles. He sees the relational struggles. He sees everything, the marital struggles, the financial struggles, whatever it is, Jesus Christ sees all of it. And, you know, that may not seem like it makes all the difference or changes things, but it does. It really does. It changes things because Jesus Christ is there. That means even when you feel like, right? There's that word again, feel, right? We want to be careful of those feelings. Even when you feel like you've been abandoned, even when you feel like nobody cares, even when you feel like God is ignoring you, it's not true. Jesus is there. Jesus is there. And so Jesus was there for them. And he says, because I'm here, you don't have to be afraid. Um, now, what does Peter tell him? Can somebody read verse 28? What does Peter say in verse 28? Who can read verse 28 for us? Yes. What's your name? Holly. Holly. And what's your name? Rachel. Rachel. Okay. Holly, Rachel, Richard? Okay. Whew. You know, doing okay. All right, go ahead, Holly. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Yeah. Okay, so this agreement that Peter makes with Jesus, what do we call this type of agreement? What's that? Prove it. Yeah, approve it. Okay, good. A commitment, right? And, and, and Peter says, look, if it is you, then I'll come on the water. Now, uh, young people, Is that a good or bad idea right now? How many of you say, my mom or dad in the middle of a storm on the lake in the boat would want me to go and try and see if I can walk on the water? That would be a good idea. How many say that would be a bad idea? Yeah. Yeah. Consensus. 100% consensus. Even the kids know this is a bad idea. And here's why it's a bad idea. What's the only thing keeping them alive right now? What are they in? The boat. And as fishermen, what do they know? The boat. 
This is what they're experts at. Boats! They have not been spending a lifetime with their dad practicing walking on the water. This is not their expertise. So what is Peter thinking? Well, what has the presence of Christ done for Peter? Where are Peter's faith levels as soon as he sees it's Jesus? High or low? High. Where are his fear levels? Low. And his faith leads him to make a commitment for Jesus. And somebody read the, the, the first couple words of verse 29 and tell me how Jesus reacts to Peter's commitment. What does he think about this commitment? Somebody read the few first few verses to the exclamation mark in verse 29. Come. Now, I don't know about you guys, but does this seem like Peter's making a pretty reckless commitment in our eyes? Is it reckless? Would you maybe, even if Peter was somebody who was a member of your church, might confront him and say, you're being a fool? <laughs> right? Well, it's a demon to tell him the same thing. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Right. So how does Jesus feel about commitments made by faith? Even big ones. How does Jesus feel about the commitments you make by faith? Come. Come. Wow. That is a pretty strong affirmative. Come. I endorse it. I want it. Do it. Do it now. Come. And you know, so much of the Christian life just requires faith. It just requires faith. And we have to make commitments all the time without seeing all of the details and everything come together yet, right? You know, I'm sure five years ago, Pastor Jeff and his family coming out here. I should say Pastor Jeff and his clan coming out here, right? And they're looking around Montana and they're like me when I drive into Montana and I see all the one-way-in, one-way-out signs, you know, and no trespass. I think Montana's, you know, state logo says no trespassing, <laughs> especially if you're from California, right? You know, that's a people's mentality. And you, and you, you see all this and you go, I don't know. You know, we've got a garage. How are we going to do this? How am I going to live? How am I going to provide for my family, Right? Here's, here's a Christian decision that you have to make by faith. Tithing. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I look at the month's financial setup, you know, or what's coming down the pike financially, and I think this is not a good month to be tithing. This is not a good month to be giving to missions. Why? Because you're looking at this number, and then you do these equations, and then here's the equal sign, and here's this number. And this number is red right? And you're going, I don't know about that. Or I don't know if you guys remember before kids, right? As parents, you know what you say as a young couple when you get married? Well, we want to be ready before we have kids. Can you be ready <laughs> for kids? Can anybody be really ready for kids? No, you can't be ready. You have to just do these things by faith. This is so crucial to the Christian life that we do make commitments by faith. And not only that, can somebody read the verse, rest of verse 29? Who can read that? 
And Pastor, when do we go to typically? Uh, 45 after. 40. Good. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So Peter makes the commitment. Jesus says, come, what's left for Peter to do? Do it, right? And what does Peter do? He does it. Could you imagine him in your mind's eye, gripping the side of that boat as it's rocking back and forth violently and the rain's hitting his face face, and the wind is, is making him cold and as he shivers and he puts one leg out and all the other disciples are thinking, oh man, we're going to have to rescue this guy in the middle of the storm. What, Peter, why couldn't you, why couldn't you have made a more reasonable commitment and said, you know, I'll donate a couple shekels to the offering, Lord, if it's you. What, Lord, I'll, 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 I'll mend the nets when this is over if it's you. Why, Peter? Why did you have to make such a big commitment? And then, to their surprise, Peter starts walking on the water. Is this amazing? God empowers him to keep his commitment. Now, something happens between verse 29 and 30. It's not stated in the lines, right? It's not recorded in Scripture. Somebody read verse 30 and tell me what happens and why they think it happens. Yes? So when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and in the beginning of the sea, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Yeah, so we were just having one of the pinnacles and the peaks of Peter's life. We were just having an ultimate spiritual high, right? Verse 29, he's standing on the water. It feels like concrete. Faith level, right? Fear level. And then verse 30, faith level. (laughs) Fear level, as he's a distressed drowning victim all of a sudden, right? In the middle of a storm where the waves are pounding him from every side. What happened and why? Why do you think this happened to Peter? Yeah. He's lost his focus. He's focused on the storm. He's focused on his circumstances. He's focused on his environment. And he's lost focus of who? Yeah, he's lost relationship with God. His, his fellowship, he, he allowed his fellowship with Christ to be broken for, this, for the sake of being focused on the things that were about to get him. Right? And we're about to apply this here in a second, but this is, this is so where we are today. Right? This is so where we are today. Now, um, what does Peter do at the end of verse 30, what is that called? The, the last couple words he utters, Lord, save me. What do we call that in the Christian life? What is that called when you talk to God? The high-pressure prayer. <laughs> yeah, the high-pressure prayer versus the low-pressure prayer. <laughs> right. Prayer. Supplication. Supplication. Yeah. And somebody read verse 31 and 32. Yes. 
What's your name? Lori. Lori. Okay, how does Jesus answer the prayer? <clears throat> Rescue and rebuke, both. Yeah, yeah. He answers it. He rescues. He answers it very incredibly, very powerfully, very all of a sudden, and it's done, right? And then... Pastor got at it just now, but what is Christ in particular? What is the particular words Jesus Christ uses to diagnose Peter's heart problem in the middle of this? What's his heart problem? Why did he start sinking? What is he, what's the heart issue there? Faith. Faith. You know, this little phrase shows up in the book of Matthew three or four times. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Jesus Christ is in Capernaum and he's getting ready to, he says, I'm going to transition my ministry. I'm going to look towards Jerusalem and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And he shares the most intimate thing of his ministry with, with the 12 guys he thought he was closest with. And that is, guys, I am about to go to Jerusalem. And I've not told anybody this yet, but I'm going to die there. And you know what Peter says? No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. And you know what he has to say? Get behind me, Satan. And you know what phrase we find at the end of that passage in, in, in Matthew 16? Oh, you of little faith. Man, faith makes a big difference when you're following Jesus in this world. It makes a huge difference. Now, when we think about trials, when we, when, we, when me and you go through difficult times, What's the relationship between faith and going through a trial? And what's the relationship of fear and going through a trial? What difference do those two things make in a trial? How will they affect it? Anybody got any ideas? You don't have to tackle both. You can tackle one or the other. Yes? Well, fear is knowing that something bad could happen. Yeah. 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 Well put, you know, in a trial, fear is going to cause anxiety. It's going to cause you to doubt. And faith is going to allow you to go through it with confidence, having a peace. Good. Good. Anybody else want to tackle that? Anybody else want to contribute to that? Now, Something really interesting happens in verse 33. Can somebody read verse 33? Go ahead. What's your name? Everett. Everett. Yeah. Okay. What are they doing in this verse? Worshiping Christ, right? And they're worshiping Christ, why? Yes. They realize who He is. He reveals more of Himself to them through action. 
And that causes them to have fear and faith levels. What are their faith levels at? You know, now it's a glassy sea. What are their faith levels? Their fear levels. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Was Jesus the same before the storm, through the storm, and after the storm? Did he ever change in that process? Who are the ones that changed a lot, constantly? The people, the disciples. So, so my burden this morning from this text is this, and I feel this right now myself. I am tempted to turn on the news, right? And you start listening or, you know, you put on a podcast and you start listening to everything that's going on in the world. I remember just two days ago, we were in Colorado and this lady sat down with me and she said, I am convinced we are going to have an enormous recession in this country. It's coming. It's right around the corner, you know? <laughs> you hear stuff like that. and You're tempted to check your bank account and your retirement account because you're thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> right? And, and you hear the stuff, you hear enough of this, this panicked, panic propaganda that everybody's cramming down your throat right now, right? Of here's all the things that are going wrong and here's who's probably going to be elected, here's who's not going to be elected, here's what's going to happen in the world, here's what's going to happen with China as a result, here's what's going to happen with this. And in 20 years, I mean, you know, America's not going to exist. And there's all this panicked rhetoric, right? And you look at all that as a Christian, you think, how on earth am I expected to be a follower of Christ in the middle of a world that might revoke my nonprofit status as a missionary if I do not allow homosexuals to be hired onto my staff? How is this going to work, Jesus? Right? And so there you are, the distressed drowning victim in the middle of this rough storm on the seas of life. But he's never left. And he's standing there with you and he's saying, I'm right here. I haven't changed. I haven't changed since the early church. I haven't changed since Nero. I haven't changed since Caesar. I haven't changed since Constantinople and Constantine. I haven't changed when the Roman Catholic Church took over the world and abused my word. I haven't changed when they were putting, you know, guys who were trying to translate the word of God out of Latin so God's people could understand. I didn't change when they, when they put people on the rack and stretched them out. I haven't changed in two world wars. I haven't changed. Yes, your world changes. I don't change. God doesn't change, and He never leaves. He doesn't abandon you. We've never been abandoned by God as Christians. And the difference between fear and faith is having confidence in the identity of who Jesus Christ is. You want to not be caught between fear and faith and be in a state of worshipfulness that leads you to have a strong faith grounded in Jesus Christ, what you need to do is get to know him, right? And to do that, we need to be in God's word, right? Isn't this the most precious document on the face of the earth? And don't you just wish that CNN and Fox News would just once 
instead of blabbing on about nothing, turn to Matthew chapter 1 and start reading for a day. Wouldn't you love that to be the coverage? And let me tell you, more things would be answered than are ever answered by the slew of experts and politicians they bring on every day. All the answers are in here. Everything you want to know about how to face life is in here. And here's what's in here. The character of God. Even in the Old Testament, some people don't preach out of the Old Testament, and it's just a shame. Because they think the Old Testament is gone and gone. Doesn't apply to us anymore. Wrong. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All of God's word is profitable. All means all. (laughs) Right? And God's word is profitable for this very reason, is that it reveals him. You know, the book of Leviticus, where your devotional life goes to die, right? There's a book where you think, what on earth is there for me in this book? Besides procedure on the burnt offering and the grain offering and the sin offering, and you're going through, what is the point of this? The point of it is a God behind it. A God that it points to. A God whose character and characteristics are revealed in the text that point back to who He is because who He is is foundational for your life no matter what age you live in. And no matter what era of the Bible you read from, there is evidence of who He is. And if you don't have who He is and your faith is not in that, you're going to be overcome by fear. Because the currents of political propaganda are very strong, right? And we can be shaken easily, easily. So I'm praying for you this morning. I'm praying for me, my own life, for my family, that we would not be overcome by fear and let feelings dictate what we do, but that we would look to the real hard facts of Scripture, right? People say, this is science, This is science. (laughs) This is reality. This is God's world. What he says in here is true. It's more true than what some guy in a lab coat can tell me, right? It's more true than what Bill Nye the science guy says. Because God says it. This is true. And that is what I'm grounded in. You ever tried to teach a child to sleep in the dark, right? So sometimes you get your siblings' children you know, your nieces and nephews, and they come to your house and you turn off the light and they go, can you turn the light on? And so you start there. And then, uh, and then, then a couple nights later, you turn it off and say, well, can you turn the bathroom light on? Okay. And then, you know, you turn all the lights off and close the door. And they go, well, would you just leave the door open? Well, no. <laughs> no, I won't. Now, if they're 27 and we're still struggling with this, we've got a problem. And here's the problem. They've not learned that the realities of the light are the same realities in darkness. And they have such a craving for somebody to relieve the darkness with any bit of light that they're incapable of living in truth when it's completely dark. It is dark in our world. And don't you just long for some light? Don't you just want one decent guy to come along and take it all and make it right and shut everybody up and everything goes back to normal? Don't you crave that? Well, 
God is the same God in darkness as he is in light. And sometimes what God is trying to teach us is to trust him even when it's dark and difficult. Pastor.